Hey, everybody. Welcome to Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and I'm so happy you're here with us. If you're just joining for the first time, I am a special needs mom, a special needs attorney, and a best-selling author. So please grab your coffee. And if you're like me, you might be listening in your car. I spent a lot of time in the car in my day. And please join us for some important discussions to help you thrive in this complex special needs world. Each week, we're going to chat with parents and experts, and sometimes parents who are experts, to offer compassionate advice for all stages of your life. These are the conversations you would have with your best friend if your best friend was an expert like me. Let's go. Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. So this week, we are starting a series on education and education topics. I'm going to have one podcast that will diverge just a little bit from that education theme, but otherwise, we are heading down a path of huge interest for me in February and March. And I'm super excited about it because this is the time of year when everybody is taking a look at what's going on with summer. They're looking at their kids and young adults progress. They're thinking about programs for next year. And frankly, they're looking at transition to adulthood. So in Massachusetts, we have a big conference coming up at the Federation for Children with Special Needs in March, and just a number of other things going on that are education-based. So again, I just get super excited about this topic. So I have strung together with the help of my team. Thank you, Ivy. She's been awesome. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you to our marketing team. And we have pulled together some fantastic guests and some fantastic topics to build out a well-rounded group of topics and just some amazing information for you. Now, a lot of this information is Massachusetts-based. We're talking about programs and services and supports, but the theme itself or the the ideas or the topics are not things that you only see in Massachusetts. We're using these programs and services as a way to spark conversation and spark an idea. So for those of you who've been listening to this podcast for a long time, you know that I love to use this podcast as a way to show an example of an idea or a theme. And I've always said, especially in the beginning, you know, if you can dream it, you can do it. Many of the people that I've had on the show were parents or family members or a professional who had an idea and they just set out and created something new that didn't exist before and is now out there in the community meeting the needs of people with disabilities. And it's fantastic. It's awesome. So that's what's going on with a lot of the people that we are going to talk to in the next eight weeks or so. So that is also true for what is going on with our guest today. Mary Sokolowski, who is the National Enrollment Specialist for a program called CIP, College Internship Program, which has locations in Lee, Massachusetts, which is out in Western Massachusetts in a place known as the Berkshires. Also, Melbourne, Florida, Bloomington, Indiana, Long Beach, California, and Berkeley, California. It's a transition program that is working with students um, with unique learning challenges. And the conversation that we have uh, came from 
an article that she put out right at the beginning of this year that was fascinating to me. And I really wanted to have a conversation with her about it and explore it a little bit deeper. It was called 10 Lessons in Transitioning from High School to College for Students with Autism and Learning Differences. Cool topic, really cool conversation. And transition for youth with disabilities is a favorite theme of mine. In the law firm that I founded and manage, we are most frequently working with students with disabilities. And I get the most requests to consult with this age group and their parents because it is the most confusing. It requires the most navigation. There's, especially in Massachusetts, and this is different from state to state, but particularly in Massachusetts, um, and many of you may experience this as well, there's no one door to walk through where you can say, hello, I am a student with a learning difference. I am a student with ADHD. I am a student with autism. I am a student with an intellectual disability. I am a student with Williams syndrome. I am a student with Down syndrome. I am a student who is blind or hard of hearing. You walk through that door at XYZ agency, state agency, and, you know, a counselor or a case manager will sit you down and say, hello, Susie Smith, nice to meet you. Let me roll out the red carpet for you. And here are all the services and supports that you will need within our state. And let me help you fill out all those forms and apply for all of those things that you may be eligible for. And let me explain all of those rules to you so that you understand them. That does not happen. <laughs> um, there are other states that do things a little better than we do that are not as fractured as we are. And, um, you know, there are states that don't do things nearly as well as we do. So we are certainly not alone in our challenges. But I am hoping that with this podcast and with all the other things that we do, we shine a light and bring some information to families and to self-advocates. And the next chapter in what we are doing is at special needs companies who, uh, you know, sponsor this podcast um, and we sponsor it because basically I pay for it um, is that I am going to start some group coaching programs and I am very excited about that. And we'll tell you more about that very soon. So at any rate, I am very excited to present uh, Mary to you and loved the conversation that we had in talking about her tips in transitioning from high school to college because students with learning differences and autism in this space really need extra care when they get to college even if they are academically proficient. And one of the key tips that I learned or one of the key understanding, the key areas of understanding was that um, kind of blew my mind. Most learning is not done in the classroom. It's done outside of the classroom. So once I started thinking about that, so much became clear to me about what needs to happen for these students. So without further ado, here's Mary, and I hope you love this interview as much as I did. Thank you, and here we go. Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. So I am back today to talk with Mary Sokolowski, who is the enrollment, uh, oh, 
enrollment specialist, national enrollment specialist. Man, I knew I was going to mess something up today. Mary and I were joking about this before I got started. I got pulled into something right before I started this podcast and my neurodiverse brain cannot handle two things at the same time. So I know my fans know this and will forgive me, but um, it's been a busy day. I have an appeal going on for a really special person in my life that I am guardian for. And I am, you know, kind of freaking out about it a little bit. Um, and I hope that it goes well. Uh, my associate Ethan is taking care of it. And I'm, I'm going to actually talk more about that on another show. But um, anyway, thank you so much for being on the show today, Mary. Mary, I'm singing her praises in my intro. And I know that um, she is uh, the it, involved in CIP, which is the college internship program. And it is a very special place. I know many students who have come through there with some incredible life skills. I am so proud that she is on the show with us today. Thank you so much, Mary. Oh, Annette, you're really welcome. I am honored to be on this show and uh, really look forward to talking to you about this. And um, yeah. So let's go. Let's go. So um, I'll try to stay focused too. <laughs> well, she doesn't have the same issues that I do. But um, so Mary posted this article and I thought, ah, so here's my intro to try to convince Mary that she should be on the show with me. Um, and it was an article that posted right at the beginning of the year. And it was titled, let me make sure I get this title proper. Um, the 10 Lessons in Transitioning from High School to College for Students with Autism and Learning Differences. Woohoo! What a great article. And it totally hit the nail on the head. Um, and so I read the article. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Um, so perfect. And there were, for me, three running themes through this article that I really wanted to chat with Mary about. And, and, Today, um, some things that really struck me, Mary, were that it is really different. You know, you can have all the academic chops in the world, but it is a really yes. different learning environment for a student with learning differences, whether it's autism or another type of learning difference. And back in the day, you know, I somebody who has achieved a lot, you know, I had a learning difference and I didn't find out about that learning difference until I was in college um, and didn't know what my struggles were um, and my grades were all over the map. And so, you know, I eat this stuff up because I still, even today at, you know, the decades that I am, I, you know, I still find this stuff fascinating and I, you know, I live here, you know, it's in my heart, right? Um, yeah. Yep. So I'm so excited that we know so much more today about how to help students achieve. Oh, it's amazing. So, um, so let's dig in and talk about this. Um, first of all, the thing that struck me the most, and I got so excited when I read it, was the statement that most learning takes place outside of the classroom. What a bold yes. statement. Let's talk yes. about that. Yes, Most absolutely. Taking place outside of the classroom. It's, what did you mean by that? <laughs> well, it's just, it's kind of an, ex, it's an extraordinary difference in the way high school learning um, and the way college learning takes place. And, uh, you know, I taught at community colleges and, and other institutions for a really long time as an adjunct. And I know we'll get to that, you know, in a bit, Yeah, but um I would tell my students, Annette, like, you really need to do at least two hours outside of the classroom for every credit hour that you have. So let me do the math, students and everyone. That's six hours for every three credit course. Now, out, that's six hours outside, as well as the three hours that you're going to be in the class, sitting in the classroom. So, um, that, you know, and that varies from student to student, from subject to subject, but it, it does give a sort of a thumbnail sketch of how much work is expected to be done outside of the classroom. And that is, uh, sometimes takes the form of reading, very close reading. Um, the homework is not the same 
you know, it's, um, I taught in English, so I, I can't really speak so much to, um, although, yeah, I can take, uh, you know, the homework isn't the same. You're not right. going to go over the homework. You're not going to go over the homework in class, right? You're probably going to do it online at this point and it's going to be auto graded or something. And that's it. You just, you, you're on your own and you're on your own for an additional roughly six hours a week for every three credit class you take. Um, so, so, and I tell students this, okay, so I'm in, I, I used to teach English and um, I would tell students this and, and they would just not, it's, a lot of them just wouldn't actually believe me. <laughs> and, and I would have these students sort of at, at, at midterm having really low grades, you know, students who were straight A students and suddenly they had a C at midterm and they would say, well, what the heck? And I would say, well, have you been reading and have you been, you know, outlining your papers as I give detailed instruction on, you know, do an outline, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to grade an outline, right? Because I'm teaching five classes. All, we just don't have time to do a lot of that. So you're, you're on your own, you know, you've got to do your outline. You've got to do, again, this is an English class, you know, I, thesis development, all these different things that you have to do on your own that I'm not going to be step checking you every step of the way. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then, and then I'll have you hand in a draft and you'll get some comments on that, but it's not going to be, you know, uh, it's not going to be the kind of detailed commentary that you might be, uh, you know, accustomed to working one-on-one -on -one with a, a teacher in a classroom. Yeah, because essentially what you're talking about is how to study, that studying is a separate skill. Yes. And learning how to study is you know, part of this whole learning outside of the classroom. Piece. Yes, yes, yes. And in special education, our students are being spoon fed every yes. piece yes. of it, you know, for, for most students, they're being spoon fed through it. And so that is, you know, it's, it's what they need at the time, but for many students, they're not transitioning along to having that taken away little by little and becoming more independent in their study skills as they get older and get ready for college, it, they right. kind of drop off the cliff. And yes. so, you know, as I was reading your, you know, your article, that's what I'm getting out of it is that all of a sudden they go from this completely supported environment into an environment where there are no supports and they're right. just expected to fly. And yes. so how do you do that? You've been given no skills to be able right. to do exactly, that. exactly. You don't. I mean, I, I, and the thing, and and I'm sure you're really aware of this, given the field that you work in, is that it really varies. Like the level of preparedness is so variable from one district to another district, from one state to another state, from one school within a district to another school, right? So some students would be, um, you know, might show up in the classroom a little more prepared you know, um, or having been given a little bit more, um, you know, uh, opportunity to sort of stretch that independent, you know, to fly a little bit independently in terms of the work that needed to go into um, being ready to be in class. But that yes. was not the vast majority of students that I saw. I mean, I saw students and some of the, I mean, neurotypical and um, neuroatypical together. I mean, I had students in a classroom. I remember, I, I think this illustrates it for me as a, as a, as an English teacher, I would say, okay, I was, I remember I was explaining, we were going to be watching a film and discussing it the way we would discuss a book. Okay. And I said, so we're going to just, you know, do like you did in high school and you're going to, you know, we're going to only, we're going to be watching the film in class and you're not going to be reading at home. And, and I saw all these puzzled glances and I would say, this is in community college, right? <laughs> I would say, what, what's, what's going on? You know, why, why the puzzled looks? And they said, oh, we didn't take our books home. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> what do you mean? And, and, and in some school districts, students are not allowed to take the books home and they read and they read in class in senior level English yeah. in high school, they're popcorn reading, right? going from one to one to one. So they're actually doing the reading in the classroom. At least this is, I don't know how pervasive this is. This is just one snapshot. 
And so I I was so, I, I just, it was jaw dropping. And I remember um, also my brother, my nieces, um, one of them had s- several different learning differences and he wanted to buy them the books, I remember. And I, I think they were basically, this, the, they were like, you can't. I mean, I don't know how they would know, but they were like, you can't, you know, because I guess that's an unfair advantage if you have money, whatever. And I understand the principles behind this, right? Like having everyone have access to the same materials, right? And maybe I, I don't really understand it. It's the, the districts are underfunded, so they can't afford to buy To Kill a Mockingbird or whatever book it is that they're reading. They can't afford to buy it for all 35 students in the classroom. But But that is a... Um, I, so again, maybe you have some insight into like how pervasive that practice is. But when I found out this, my student, it was towards the end of my adjuncting career. And when I found out that my students were not, many of them were not reading at home because they just didn't have the book. I, I, I mean, I was, it makes you want to weep. It's just, it, it, it did. I mean, I think I probably did weep, you know, in the parking lot, you know, like sitting in my car. I, I couldn't believe it. And, um, yeah, if, and if you're a student with dyslexia like me oh. and it took you a really long time to read something, you're never going to get through the material in a 40 minute class. Right. Right. And how is that going to affect you if you're, if you have dyslexia and you're, and you're doing popcorn reading? I mean, what is it going to be like? Oh, Annette, pass, Annette, pass. You know, I, I mean, it's so detrimental. So I, again, I don't, I am not, I don't, the one thing I want to always avoid is kind of um, saying, you know, like my experience or the states that I lived and worked in, right. uh, you know, they're all the same. It's different everywhere. But I will tell you that I, in the, I will pick on um, one of our smallest states and one of my favorite states, um, which is Rhode Island. And I would know on the first day of class when I taught in Rhode Island, I've also taught in Massachusetts, Maryland, um, New York, uh, and I think that's it. Um, But I would know in Rhode Island, in this one place that I taught in Rhode Island, I would know, I would be able to tell by the end of the first day of class which school district, which students went to um, what was known as the very best school district in the state. I would know by the end of the first class because of the way they were able to synthesize material, the way they were able to sort of like have that rapport back and forth. And they got, I don't know how they got it, but they got some, um, some of that transition training that you're talking, that you were talking about to bring it back to transitions. You know, they, Somehow, um, I don't know whether the district was teaching those skills. Um, I don't know. I don't know how that happened, but you could tell. And I think a lot of it was about what is taught, you know, what's in the curriculum. And, and, and I don't know how much study skills are taught. And if they're taught for students who want to go to college, if they're taught, you know, this is how you do it in college. Because it's so different than the way you do it in high school. Absolutely. Right? And um, and I think there's no one size fits all. That's the other thing, especially with neuro, neuroatypical learners, neurodivergent learners. It's, it's, it, there's absolutely no one size fits all, you know, the strategies of learning, independent learning, um, for you, Annette, are going to be different than they are for me, than they are going to be for someone right. else. Yes. And you know? that's why we're going to, in a few minutes, we're going to talk about why transition programs are so important. Yeah. Because of the individualization of the program for the student. So, yes. So the next theme that I saw in this article was self-advocacy skills are key. Key. And again, a lot of students not coming out with these skills from high school. And so, yes, they need to get them before they go to college. But if they're not coming out of high school with them, how do you do that? So, right. um, and mo- so I work with so many families and so many students. Um, and let me tell you, uh, the colleges, whether it's a community college or a full-blown, you know, bachelor, uh, you know, four-year college, they are not thrilled with having parents or guardians um, knocking on their door 
to advocate for their students. They're like closing the door in their face. Yeah. Uh, legal authority or not yep. legal authority doesn't matter. Oh, right. Yeah. But the students are, you know, not really able to advocate for themselves in a lot of cases. So how do we overcome this issue? This is a big issue, right? Right. So, um, so talk to me about this. You know, right. this is the problem because you've you, you've got, and we're going to talk about the adjunct issue in a minute. But yeah. you know, you've yeah. got this broad disparity of students' ability to be able to advocate for themselves. I mean, in general, 18-year-olds are not ready in general to really start their life and to, you know, advocate for anything uh, for themselves. But a neurodiverse student or a student with autism, you know, maybe even less so, maybe. Yeah, so... You know, I think what I was just thinking of when you said that is, you know, at that at, at that and at many ages, really, you don't know what you don't know, right? So you don't even know sometimes what you need to advocate for, what you can advocate for, you know, what are the things that, you know, sort of rules that, um, you know, are less flexible. Like you said, um, for example, if a family doesn't have guardianship, and you can correct me on this, if a family doesn't have guardianship, I, there's no, nothing, I can't talk to a family as a professor. You can't talk to a parent. I can't just give them an update on how their kid is doing in class, how their student is doing in, in class. I, I am prevented okay. by law. I can't do that as a, as a professor, right? So, so, so you don't, so the, so this, this, the, the, no one, you know, it's like, what is it that the student needs to advocate for, right? So you don't know what you don't know. So what is it that they're advocating for? Who is it that they're advocating to? How is it best to advocate, which pulls in some social skills, right? That, you know, how do you talk to a professor, how, um, you know, understanding the lay of the land in terms of, you know, reading the social cues of a faculty member and every faculty member is going to be different in college, right? So some faculty members are very unapproachable and very formal. Um, some faculty members are very loose and, you know, want, I mean, I always wanted my students to call me by my first name, that kind of thing. And others demand that you call them doctor such and such or whatever. So, so reading that social landscape of how you even talk to someone is... Um, is, is, is kind of baffling for many students, not just n- neurodivergent students, but for neurodivergent, neurodivergent students, I think it can be particularly difficult in terms of, um, you know, some of the social skills challenges that, and reading social cues, reading the environment. So self-advocacy pulls in a lot of different practical skills. And um, so I think, you know, students part of it, then this is why you said transition programs are really helpful, is if it's a transition program, um, like I have to say, self shameless self-promotion, like the college internship program, CIP, um, where we're teaching multiple different components. It's comprehensive, right? It's specialized, but it's comprehensive. So we're teaching social skills at the same time that we're teaching self-advocacy, at the same time that we're teaching um executive functioning. So it kind of crosses through being successful in college kind of crosses through all those things. And so, and self-advocacy is the one thing we say a lot, but you know, I like to look at the building blocks of what goes into self-advocacy. So who, again, those kind of questions, like who do I talk to? Um, When do I talk to them? Right? So you have to time your, if your professor's racing out of the classroom and is like giving you every social signal on earth that they're like, they have to get out of there for whatever reason. Um, and you're just, you know, wanting to talk to them right then, it's not going to work. Right. And um, so, so one of the things we do at CIP, and I think that this could be helpful for other people, because I think this can be done um, is to, the parent or the tutor or whoever is helping the student can't be in direct contact with a college faculty member. I mean, unless they're a guardian and that's, that is upsetting to me that even though you have guardianship, you're, I don't understand why that's 
happening. And I'm sorry for that. That's awful. Um, but, but, um, but, but you can't, so if you don't have guardianship, right, you can't talk to the faculty member, but there's nothing that says you can't sit beside that student. This is exactly what we do at CIP, sit beside that student or with that student and problem solve what is going on at a particular time in a particular class and figuring out the path forward in terms of self-advocacy. Did your professor, what kind of, inf you know, what kind of information did they provide you in terms of best way to contact them? right? Did they give you a phone number? Did they say you could text them? Did you say they could, did they say you could email? Did they provide a phone number? Which are the best ways? Okay, now we've determined the best way. I'm going to sit with you while you make that phone call or, and even better yet, if you're going to, if it's a phone call, we're going to have an agenda on the phone call, right? We're going to have the list of the talking points that you want to hit with your professor, right? Um, when you give them a phone call and then, or if it's an email, it tends to be a little bit easier because then, you know, you can go back and edit and all the things. Um, but I think so planning is also a key to self-advocacy and there's no rule against, you know, helping, getting help planning, Right. Um, and so, and again, that's part of executive function and, and, and it's very cross-cutting with, with the self-advocacy and the social skills. And then you might, as a student, figure out which is the most comfortable medium for you to communicate with your professors, right? Is it through email? If they've given me the option of calling or emailing, which is better, you know? And so there's, no, again, the parent can't email, it can't email a professor, but the student can, and the and whoever the helper is, um, and it could be an executive function coach, right? Um, it, it, it you know, and if you're in a transition program like CIP, you're going to be getting this as part of the program, right? This is going to be part of what we do. Um, sitting with you, planning your communication, um, pl figuring out your best style of communication. There's so many steps in self advocacy, right? So, and then and then plant your timing, you know. Um, I used to tell students all the time, if you need to, I mean, I was one of those professors who was like, no extensions, you have to meet all the deadlines. But if you really asked me and if you came in advance and you were like, um, I have a wedding to go to that weekend or something, I, I would, of course, I'm going to be flexible. Life happens. So, um, but you would have to know, you know, you have to figure that out. You can't just do it the morning of, right? I get these emails the morning of, like yeah. I suddenly. So, so you have to think about all those things, timing, format, all that stuff um, before you can then actually ask for what it is that you need. And then you have to also obviously figure out what it is that you need. So Mary, I am just blown away. This is such great advice and I'm such glad. great tips. This, that's amazing. Amazing. Um, I'm really glad. Is, it is so difficult. And of course, your student has to be willing and open to receive the support. Yeah, absolutely. But one would assume that if they are in a program like CIP, they are open to receiving the support. Sure. Yes. I do sometimes hear from parents or, you know, caregivers that some students are not receiving, not willing and open to receiving yes. the support, unfortunately. Right. right. Um, and then, you know, they just, um, they're just not um, self-aware yeah. of their, uh, of their needs. And yes. right. uh, they unfortunately don't do that well in school. Right. And right. they kind of go down in flames, but that's a learning experience for them as well. Unfortunately, it's a bad learning experience, but it's a learning experience. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, at CIP and other transition programs, uh, and I can really speak to CIP, obviously, because that's where I work, but um, you said a couple of key things, um, self-awareness. So that's like another thing that we're working with with students on, motivation. So a student really, um, we, you know, our admissions process is not competitive in the same way of going to a um, an Ivy League university is or something like that. It's it's, we're looking for the right fit. And one of the components of right fit for us is 
motivation. And it doesn't have to be rah-rah cheerleader motivation, but it just has to be the motivation and some level of self-awareness, not deep because we work on that. We teach that and we work closely with students, but some level of self-awareness that I need to get some help here. I need some assistance. I need some, I need supports, you know, and then the willingness to be open to those. And we work with a lot of families whose students aren't quite there yet. Um, and, and how to, how to work with students to, to get them there is the topic of a whole other conversation. And my only concern, I think you're right. I mean, a lot of students do, um, crash and burn, um, sometimes, you know, not for a variety of different reasons, you know, there's so much pressure to succeed. There's so much pressure to, to go to college and just do. And if you've been getting straight A's, even if you're, you know, like you're neurodivergent, you've been getting straight A's, um, or A pluses, you know, you have a 4.0 GPA and then you go to a four-year college and um, and we could we could talk about this a little bit more, but there's course load issues as well, you know, in terms of um, how many courses you take. And 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 then we see students flat crashing and burning. And yes. and and that is one thing that at 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 CIP, and I I'm I I'm sure other transition programs think of this as it's a lot harder. Um, we've seen for students, particularly with ASD, but I think with other learning differences as well, to recover from those failures. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I've seen students applying who've got, had like two or three attempts, and yeah. you know, it, they're they're trying. You know, they still have that motivation, um, but it's hard to recover from that. So we really try to prevent that at CIP through the admissions process um, to set them up for success and 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 not have to have to work through that. Although you're right, it is a learning experience, but it's a matter of, I always say, we always say at CAP, everyone says, um, you know, scraped, scraped knees, we can take. Broken legs, mm, we don't, we don't want that. We it's really hard for the that. parents too, because sometimes oh, the, yeah. the parents are also really, really, you know, busted up as well. And yes. you have to kind of figure out what their expectations are because yes. nobody is a miracle worker. And once you figure out um, that people are in that frame of mind, you know, you're probably not in a good space. Yeah. Okay. I have to get to the big elephant in the room. Adjunct professors. I'm <laughs> dying to talk to you about this because our whole uh, college educational system, university educational system has really shifted in the past, you know, couple of decades, really. And um, so your article reports, and I know this to be true because my husband teaches as well, that 75% of uh, professor roles are now being taught by adjunct professors. And adjunct professors, for those of you who don't know, are non-permanent um, teaching roles. They are people who have other jobs and they step in, you know, to teach, you know, uh, one or two classes. They are professionals. Um, you know, let's say like a, an attorney like me who has a full practice and I maybe step in to, um, to teach a business law class in right. a four-year degree program. And right. I teach one class or I teach two classes. I'm super busy. I don't have time for the students. Right. <laughs> I pop right. in, maybe I have office hours, like one or two hours a week. And, you know, yeah, I love teaching, but you make so little money at this. This is not your primary role. Right. So I'm just going to state a few things that your article talks about, but what I already know to be true as well, that I haven't been trained as a teacher. Right. Okay. I certainly haven't been trained to teach somebody who's neurodiverse or neuroatypical or, you know, somebody with different learning needs for sure. Um, on top of everything else, I I've already stated I'm busy. I don't make a lot of money. This is not my profession. I'm not like tied to the success of the university. Um, and some other things that are really different from high school I am not working together with my colleagues like I'm like high school for the success of the student. I'm not in a team of right. 
professionals who meet to talk about the student and their success, you know? Um, So, you know, I have no idea how this student is doing other than in my class. Yeah, and exactly. Accessible. Um, You know, there's just a lot of different things going on here. So this is a system almost set up for failure for our students. It's just so, so different compared to how the high school teaching environment is set up for our students. So let's talk about adjunct professors and tell me what did I miss from your perspective? Okay. okay. So I maybe should have made this, um, I could have made this more clear in the article, but I, 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 first of all, I want to say that y- y- I think I would shift the definition of, of adjunct. And this is what is going to be mind blowing, I think, to people. And this is what people, I could scream it from the rooftops and it's still like, sort of like, what? Say what now? Um, the way that you presented adjuncting is being an adjunct faculty, which is now sometimes called contingent faculty. So your your employment is contingent upon certain factors. So the way you described it is how adjuncting began. And I would say that it was a good beginning because colleges couldn't necessarily afford to have a full-time faculty who specialized in international trade with Indonesia, right? But they happen to have a group of, a cohort of students coming through who are special, you know, who are getting their uh, business degrees in, you know, relations, business relations with Indonesia. I just picked Indonesia out of the off the top of my head. So it would make great sense to, if you had an upper level class, right, for juniors or seniors to have someone with that expertise come in and teach on that particular topic. So for you, as a, as a special needs attorney, it would make great good sense for you to go do a seminar in law school about special needs, right? If it, if it were a small, small law school did not have that specialty, right, say. Um, and these, this is true in all the professions, I would say. Um, teaching, um, legal, um, engineering, um, business, for sure. Uh, and, and that's how adjuncting started. It was professionals from the world of work coming in and sharing their expertise with students. And it was actually kind of, a, in some fields, a real bonus and seen as something like, oh, here's someone with real world experience um, coming in and teaching students. This is the thing that 75% of all faculty being adjuncts right now is in every that's across disciplines. So you're talking about fundamental classes, you're talking about English, history, anthropology, sociology, all the fundamentals of a liberal arts education and all the fundamentals of a college education, period, foreign languages, everything, math. Oh, math right? Everything, science, you know, you have people who are in pre-nursing, they're taking, you know, anatomy, physiology, chemistry, biology, all disciplines. That number is an aggregate of, or a a, um, a percentage across all disciplines. So that means, um, and and just to give you a sense of things in terms of, uh, of the broader context, that tends to be, those numbers tend to be higher um, and I would absolutely refer some, you know, refer your your listeners um, and fans to, um, you know, if they want more information about it, to, you know, be in touch or 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 do some research in terms of how this plays out in at different kinds of universities at different times. But that seventy five percent is an overall number, and when you consider that, you got to think that places that are very elite institutions probably have a much lower number, which means that places like accessible places like community colleges, that number in in English departments in which I taught, that number was often 90% or more. Wow. We're teaching people how to communicate, right? How to write things. It's, you know, it may not be, you know, we're not teaching them necessarily how to interpret books. We're teaching them how to write, you know, write letters, write 
anything. And people still need to learn how to do that stuff. So, so, so that, the whole department is like a drop-in center. The whole thing. Yeah. yeah. In fact, my alma mater has taken, has which is Rutgers, has taken the writing component out of the English department and they have a separate writing program where they're paying people way less than, than professors, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the solution some places have done. But it's, so it's, it's, it's endemic. Um, it's less severe at elite institutions. The more, you know, generally the bigger the endowment the college has, the less adjuncts they're going to have, I would say, as a, just a general rule. Um, it is a money situation. And so what happened, Annette, is that professors retired and, um, you know, or left the profession or whatever, but they left. And those those were, and they were, they had tenure and they were tenure track, right? And they would get, um, and that's a whole other topic, but, and when they retired, by and large, the story I see and hear is that that was replaced, those professors were replaced by adjunct faculty. So, and financially, just to give you a sense of things, you know, like a tenured professor retiring, I don't know what they're going to retire at, but just let's just say $80,000. Let's say $100,000 a year plus benefits, right? Um, you can have that amount of course load covered for a fraction of that amount by adjunct faculty. Because I was being paid like $2,000 for a class at certain points. Well, depended on the college, you know, and it's, this is all very dependent. It's very different. It's kind of like what we talked about with school districts earlier. It's kind of idiosyncratic, but there's no question that adjuncts um, are teaching so much. They're carrying so much of the teaching workload in academia today. And um, so I, that's the one thing I would say is that the way you described adjuncts I think has some positive effects, but also you mentioned the the the, the, the some of the negative effects, right? Which are also true. Um, so, adjuncts who are not the of the model of the professional who has a full time job and comes in to teach one class, sort of thing. That model of adjunct that still exists, but the vast majority, I think, of that big number, that seventy five percent number, are professors adjuncts who are. Um, you know, some of them, like me, I was cobbling together a career. I was teaching it at certain points at like three different colleges, um, you know, at two different campuses, one college, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you'll know this commute and I'm going to share it and you can edit it out if you want. But I lived in Providence and in one day I taught in Worcester, Mass, Plymouth, Mass, and then back to Providence. You have an idea of that distance. Wow. I did that twice oh, a week. So that's a triangle. That is of epic proportions. Right. So I'm not here to complain about that. I did that. I love teaching. I'm here to say that meant when I left Worcester, I had to get to Plymouth. Yeah. Talk so let's talk about what that means for the students, though. That means you're not available yes. to them. Right. You're not you're not meeting with your other professors. So you have no idea Absolutely what's not. going on. No idea who's who. With yeah. And the only so person they, I knew was the chair because they were the person who hired me. So there's, but there's no collaboration going no on. No collaboration. For the better of the department, for the better of the students, or in an individual student. And so you are just not having any growth there or addressing right. any problems or issues. And right. the students are on their own. Yeah. Again, they are. Know, same and thing. I, and, and I just want to say also, I mean, I was an adjunct and I love adjuncts. And I think for I, I don't want to put this on them, right? This is not an issue where the adjuncts don't care and they don't, you know, et cetera. It's not about that. If you're an adjunct professor trying to make a living out of being a teacher, you are, I mean, if you think about it, that's what you want to do. You want to teach. Your passion is for that, right? Why else would you do this right. crazy thing? So it's not that adjuncts don't want to do it. It's that they often can't do it. Right. And I think I say this in the article, it's sort of like, it's not like, you know, and some of them have more teaching experience than anyone because they're teaching five, six classes a semester, right? Right. So, so, so the thing is, is I think you, again, I would go back to planning and I would respectfully 
you know, suggest that maybe you find out which of your professors are adjuncts and which of them are not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and understand that your adjunct professors, a couple of things, prepare yourself, right? So not having offices. So sometimes private conversations have to be planned as to where you're going to have them. Like if you want to disclose what your disability is yeah. to your, to your professor, you, that needs to, ha- you probably want to have that in a, um, in a, in a um, private place. Mm-hmm. Sometimes faculty, I mean, frequent, mostly almost always adjuncts don't have their own offices. They might have shared offices. So you have to plan ahead. Like, how is that conversation going to happen? I mean, if you decide to make that decision, I'm not saying everyone should make that decision. So there's issues of privacy. There's issues of, um, again, timing, right? Um, If your professor has office hours posted or, you know, by appointment or something, make sure that you, you make yourself available when they're available because they might literally just not have the the availability. Um, So, so, and here's one thing I just want to hit on is the mentorship component. Yes. You know, I remember some of my college professors still clearly, I graduated in 1986. I'm dating myself, 1986 from Rutgers. And I remember them. I remember my high school teachers, the ones, you know, like all of them, but the ones who were really my mentors. And I would go to them semester after semester, right? I would run into them in the hallways of the history department or whatever. I would see them around. Here's the thing. If you're a contingent faculty member, you have no idea where you're going to be next semester. And neither does this, neither do the students. So if you are you know, want to build the relationship with your faculty and want to continue to have them mentor you, um, you can't do it with an adjunct, really, in many cases. Um, And then you have to have, it might be helpful to have a backup plan for like, I might want to write, the student might want me to write a letter of recommendation. And then they go to type Mary Sokolowski at whatever communitycollege.com. And it's like, no longer exist, you know, so so true. It's, it's so, so, you know, I think that, and I think that all of those things that I'm talking about, and I appreciate you giving me the space to talk about them. Um, all of those things are much more impactful on students with learning differences than, Mm -hmm. and much more impactful on neurodiverse students. Negatively, I love, I love it. I love this conversation we're having. I mean, you know, as you as you're saying in, in your article, you say, you know, it's a, it's on the student to find those professors who just get them and to right. make those connections. And unfortunately, right. that's a lot. That's a lot harder. For it is. Students. But we can. They can use their coaches. They can use yes. their mentors. They can use their their person, their caregiver, their guardian, their whoever, whoever yes. their person is that guides them and helps them navigate their life, um, especially in their transition years. Whoever that person is or their people are that they trust yep. can help them seek out those mentors in their college experience and find those professors that just get them. Yes. And it's going to be different for everybody. You know, they're yes. going to connect with that, you know, physics professor or that English writing professor, you know, whatever, whoever that is for you. Um, For me, I had an economics professor that I just loved who totally inspired me. She was awesome. Elaine. That's great. Love her. her. (laughs) Um, And secondarily, I had a women's studies professor who was very inspirational in college. And I will never forget those ladies, you know, to this day taught me that I could do something that I never thought I could do. Never in a million years. Um, That's so awesome. You know, right. So you do remember. Oh, completely. (laughs) And in in high school, I had a a math teacher who um, had a special soft spot for kids in my neighborhood who, uh, you know, because where I grew up was, was not a great area. So Mm. um, he took a special liking to, to some of us and uh, helped us go further than we maybe normally would have. So yeah, there, there's always those teachers, those professors. And um, 
No, you know, they're I'm getting unforgettable. Thinking about it, so I know. Me too. I do. I, <laughs> um, I can't. I can't. I know we've, we're going a little long, but I can't stop this um, interview without talking to you about CIP. And so, I'm really proud of the way that your program has pivoted during the pandemic. I know what a wonderful job you all have done, and um, you kind of like did it on a dime, uh, like right. Right at the beginning, you just went completely online, and uh, I know, I know, you said to me, "Well, it wasn't you who made those decisions. You have a great team. I know you do." Um, so, congratulations for being able to pivot so quickly and so successfully. Um, Thank that, you. That's wonderful. Um, but I do want to give you a little plug and let you talk about CIP because it's such a special program and you're in so many locations and you're reaching so many students and helping them reach their full potential. Um, so I'm going to let you talk about it a little bit because it's wonderful. Thanks. Thank you. Um, well, I appreciate what you said about the the COVID, um, pa the pandemic, um, because, you know, like everyone, I think we, we, you know, students were going home. Well, not this case specifically, but students were going home for uh, spring break and when, you know, shutdowns were starting. And so the students went home for spring break and then it was going to be like, okay, we're extending spring break. <laughs> we were extending spring break week after week. Um, actually only a couple of weeks. And then it was like, this is it. We're in shutdown. And, um, I mean, I think the the couple of weeks of having those spring breaks were actually the uh, most amazing timing. Yeah. But um, it, the reason why I said that it wasn't me is because it's the it was the team, it was the staff at CIP at all of the locations, kind of working together to kind of get everything online as quickly as they did. I mean, every and we were we were teaching. I say we, but this is why I say it wasn't really me doing the this actual teaching life skills right? Um, fam cooking family meals, checking in with families, all these sorts of things that we, we inc incorporate into the residential part of our program. We were, uh, we were able to really think outside of the box and figure out ways to impart that even in a remote situation. And I, I really am, I mean, I've got my hand on my heart right now and with, with such gratitude to the staff and the students and the families, and they all stepped up it was really kind of amazing. Um, and that pivot was just, I think the pivot is indicative of, how, because it's how CIP works, right? Which is we're very individualized. So every student comes to us, they get, so just the, the basic facts, 18 to 26 year olds, students um, with um, ASD or related learning differences. Um, we have five locations, um, you know, I, I'm most affiliated with the Berkshire location uh, in Western Massachusetts. There's also one in Florida, uh, Bloomington, Indiana, Long Beach, California, and, and Berkeley, California. Um, so, and as I mentioned earlier, we do, you know, I think the biggest piece or the most important piece to me, at, like, I think of CIP is it's comprehensive and yet individualized, right? So every student is going to get a comprehensive instruction and coaching and small group work in life skills, social skills, um, you know, pre-academic pre or post-secondary educational opportunities. Because we've been talking college, but that's not all there is for students out there, right? right. Some of them are going into certificate programs. So um, what's next for them, you know, in terms of learning? What's next? And, and then career preparation, right? So we do wellness is another piece that we, we work on um, a lot. Um, every student has an advisor that's working with them on um, maintaining budgets and, uh, and we meet the students where they are, right? So it's a, an abilities-based program. So we see what can the student, what can you do? And then, you know, where you need support, we provide supports. And when the student becomes more independent, we can kind of fade that support yes. and, you know, and then always pull it back in if we need to, right? Um, so, you know, students live in apartments with other students. They have life skills staff um, working with them in the apartments to, to teach them, um, to work with them, coach them really on life skills. And um, it's a, it is a remarkable program. And I think it is that comprehensive uh, quality of the program that's, that's amazing. Um, and so, you know, I don't know if you have any specific questions uh, well, other than that about CIP. That's the big 30,000 foot view. 
kind of along those lines, though, can you can you talk about um, or can you give parents one piece of advice regarding how to select a program? a transition program mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. for their child um their adult child you know what what advice would you give somebody because it's so hard people come to me all the time looking for the right program and it's right. so different for everybody yeah. and we've got programs um all over new england um but people have a hard time finding them and it's hard to get people to get school districts or our government folks to pay for these programs, but even if they're paying privately, what's the criteria for finding that right fit program? One piece of advice. One piece of advice. Visit them all, bring your student, and it's all about fit, right? As you were saying. And it's about peer fit hugely. Uh, So one of the things we ask families and students is go to those places and say to your student, do you feel like this is a place you want to be mm-hmm. and can be successful? Does this so, seem... Yeah, so finding a good cohort for your students? Yes, okay. yes. I think that's absolutely critical because peer fit really underscores so much. There's a lot more research coming out now. Again, I'm not a specialist in this piece, but... um you know, in terms of lessening anxiety and setting students up for success, having that. And it's not just peer fit, but it's the fit of the place, right? It's like Lee, Massachusetts is a small town in Western Massachusetts. It's Mm -hmm. not a suburb of Boston. Some students are going to love that. And some students are going to be like, where's the mall? You know, Mm -hmm. what do you mean? I have to (laughs) drive (laughs) 20 minutes to the mall. Um, so, 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 so everything about fit, it's just, do you feel this place really is a place you can be, you know, Um, asking the the family and the student that, but, but, but that's the advice I would give to the family is find, you know, do everything you can to do that fit. Like at CIP, um, you know, once a student has applied, if the family's still not sure, we will, we will offer to do a shadow day, Right. Um, and the student can come for a long, we always, you know, encourage, obviously you kind of have the tour and then they might do a shadow day, you know, where they stay around for, you know, four to six hours and meet with more students. Um, we've done, we've done zoom meetings with students. We've put parents in touch with parents who are in our, whose students are already in the program. Right. So those are, so those are some of the ways you do the due diligence Yes. Um, as a parent. And then, and then when you visit to make sure that there's, that your student feels that fit. Does that make sense? It does. I couldn't agree more. Well, Mary, let me tell you, this has been such a great conversation. I could probably talk to you for hours, hours. I would love to come back and we would love to have you come visit CIP. You have to come visit. (laughs) As I said, I wanted to do my tour, but you know, COVID. I know COVID. <laughs> COVID. I'm so tired. But we about we it. we are. I'm not going to try to talk you into it, but I do want to let people know that we have been doing tours since September 2020. We've continued to do them. We've done them very safely. We have very high, you know, like our students and staff are um, for, like almost all <laughs> um, vaccinated. It's very safe. We haven't had a single case in Berkshire, and. Um, and so, so people can come visit and I'm not so pushing, I'm not saying that to you. I'm just saying that to families who want to come visit. We have a very vibrant tour schedule going on. So your so. campus is open Yep. and your, you, you haven't, um, you haven't um, closed down except for yeah. at the very beginning when we, when we closed down and then we came back in August, in, in March and then we came back in August and we've been, we've been up and running ever since in person. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Mary, I so admire everything that you all get done there. I really do. I love your program. I am just so in awe of how much you are able to prepare your students. And I'm sure it has something to do with that right fit and picking the right person for the program. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I'm so grateful for you making the time. Oh, thank you. 
Thank, Thank you. you. So I'm glad I could do it. And, um, you know, uh, if you have any follow-ups, if people want to follow up with me, I'd love to, I love talking as you can tell. And, uh, <laughs> well, as we talked about, you used to be in radio, so I'm going to post all of your contact information because I know you're <laughs> going to get flooded and, um, we're going to post your article as well. Cause it was so okay. good. And so thank you. thanks again. And, and, and thank you for, thank I have, I really, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Um, we are all part of the team, special needs attorneys, advocates, some of the organizations, um, you know, I, I, we're all in this together. And so I just admire the work all of the, the other professionals in the world are doing, the neuropsychologists, you know, teachers, preparing students for transition, everything, the families, um, it really is a, you know, it is a village takes a village. So I, I have a, so much respect for the work you do. And I, I, I'm just, I'm, I am very honored genuinely to have been invited. I am going to see you soon. That's okay. okay. All right. Take have care. Thanks. Bye, Bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.